Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey there, listener. Welcome to the Deep Share Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Rouse. And for the last couple of decades, I've slowly been opening my eyes to a very different world than the one I grew up hearing about. And the more conversations I have with interesting people, the more mystifying this world becomes. So without further ado, let's get deep. We've got science to celebrate demons this hell! Come on! There's rebellion in the wind. It will be crushed. Everything I've said is true, it's real. Financial problems? I'll have to put those here to test our faith. Damn lie, I, I saw them on my own eye! Did I accuse just drop sharply while I was away? We did it illusions, man. None of it is true. I'm not insane! This is mass madness, you maniac! In God's name, you people are the real thing! We are the illusion! All right. Welcome back to the Deep Share Podcast. Tonight, I am joined by Dwayne Hayes. He's the author of a website called BulletproofPub.com, which is Bulletproof Publishers. Uh, He's authored things like uh, The Future Perfect Part 1 and Part 2 now, and much more. And I can't wait to get into this. It's been a long time coming. Dwayne and I have been talking about getting together on a podcast for a while. And I really wanted to give him the opportunity to showcase this whole thing it's incredible it's huge so ladies and gentlemen Dwayne Hayes Dwayne thanks for being here man yeah awesome brother I appreciate the reach out and the talk and we've been actually talking for maybe even close to a year trying to organize all of this and I think it's just happened so serendipitously now there was some health issues that I was going through through the summer I slipped my disc and that kind of threw a whole wrench into the plans, but um, it's allowed me to get all of this out into a form that we can share nice and easily. So the future perfect part one and two, and then the exilitator and then the final one that I published yesterday, uh, how Huxley hijacked Hollywood. And so when we put all four of these stories together, we start to really, I told a friend of mine on Facebook earlier today that it's almost like we're, we found all of the edge pieces for the puzzle and now we're going to really fill it in. And so we're looking for everybody that knows more detail to, to add to this, to bring more context and, and more information to make it clear for everybody to see. Uh, I think the main goal here for us at Bulletproof Pub was to offer a place where people can land when they they have all of those questions about, you know, how did this happen? The who, what, why, where, when of it all. Once they start entering this logical phase of thinking and trying to evaluate and figure out what it is and where we should be going. Um, so we've tried to set up a place where all of those questions can be answered we're trying to do it as concisely as we can because there's a lot of people that want just to know as quickly as possible so we've boiled down a lot of books Mm -hmm. some of my sources these are uh some of them are first editions we can go to bookstores nowadays and i encourage everybody to go because these are 
uh, some magical books and they're just there for everybody to find and they won't be there forever. Right. So, I'm assuming they're not like super expensive, like all the typical books that, that like conspiracy theorists yes. like to go after and they've been like discontinued and all yes. that kind of stuff. Right. Now, some of these books I found for four bucks. Nice. There's a, there's a book sale every year here that I volunteer for because it gives me access to the books before anybody else. And they just give me some of these things, but you know, I'll definitely compensate them because I know the value. And so for the Exila tour, this is one of the, the sources that we've really relied on. There's many, many books written about the exiles writing literature in Los Angeles. It's just sort of, you know, it's certainly not mainstream. Mm-hmm. And you're holding up uh, on the Pacific. Weimar on the Pacific. It's written by Erhard Baer. Mm-hmm. And so this is really what that is all about. And we'll get into that in a bit. Excellent. Excellent. So before we do, do get too deep, um, yeah. please uh, give my audience a little bit of background into you and your life, how you came to this place where you're publishing some of the most fucking crazy truth bombs. And yeah, how'd you get here, man? I grew up in Canada, uh, born and bred Okanagan Valley, British Columbia, uh, moved to Vancouver for 20 years. Uh, straight out of high school, I was in a rock band. I was a drummer and we just booked our own shows. So we're talking early nineties during the grunge era. And so we've traveled for two and a half years, just going around circuits that we created in Western Canada, including BC, Alberta and Saskatchewan. And we're just 21, 22, 23 year olds, just put it together. (laughs) And so this is kind of where my life, this is kind of explaining who I am and how I got here. Uh, So we chased that a little bit, Uh, moved to Vancouver, started doing our own music um got to the point i think i spent about 10 years trying to establish and got to the point where it's pretty obvious that nothing was going to happen for us so i mean there's some amazing stories there i'd love to tell you but uh, in the interest of time because <laughs> yeah, they would they would really person. explain who i am but uh, <laughs> out of that i actually went to become a financial advisor and so i had my securities license and my insurance licenses for solomon smith barney and I quit just before 9-11. I, I just stopped. And uh, I was totally taken aback at the moment when I saw uh, Tower 7 fall, because that's where all of our stuff was going to. Solomon Smith Barney was in there. And I just oh. thought, wow. And it was months, just months before that, that I'd quit after getting all of my securities licenses and going through all of the hassle. I just had a real bad feeling and I pulled out. And then 9-11 happened and it, it just kind of set me on this course that we are. Uh, I got my Red Seal Carpenter after that. And then for the last 12 years, I've been just studying the trivium, uh, looking at the trivium liberal arts as a, a real answer to both, you know, developing yourself. I think that uh, being the most well-developed individual that we can be is a perfect antidote to a tyrannical government. Now I'm taking that quote right from Jordan Peterson. Uh and we can talk about Jordan Peterson, but you know, there was a time that I was a fan of his mm-hmm. uh, and I still take a lot of that information, but we see he's kind of gone sideways now. Yeah, and so, yeah. yeah, I would say that the one thing that I'd like to say there is that I'm kind of well-versed in all three arts being fine arts. And then the utilitarian of my carpentry and then the liberal arts is really uh, gives me the, and anybody that, um, 
learns this stuff, the ability to live a life rather than make a living. So there's a huge difference there. Now you can actually be in control of everything in your life. And this is the education that they've removed. And so we're asking people to pick up this book and start reading because it's readily available. Ooh. I've got several versions, but the one I recommend is this one, the Trivium, the Liberal Arts of Logic, Grammar, and Rhetoric. Now they flipped uh, logic and grammar there, which is an important distinction, but we don't have to get into that. I'd say that what most people need to know is that this is really the answer. This is uh, what what is in here is what Kabbalah, what Kabbalah is based on. Mm-hmm. It's also what Freemasonry is based on. It's also uh, the liberal arts master's degree at Ivy League universities. It's really what has established a, a knowledge gap that created the caste system that we live in. Mm. Uh, and, and it's the answer because they've taken this information from us, coveted it, and, and used it to their own with their own devices. And, and so mm. you can see a lot of these people even today are uh, Bachelor of Arts, Master of Art, liberal artists. So the head of the CDC, she has the same credentials. And, and, and really, this is, this is what a liberal arts degree is, the most well-versed in everything of our world. So the trivium is grammar, logic, rhetoric, and then the quadrivium is arithmetic, music, geometry, and astronomy. So wow. together, these seven things start to combine and we get a real understanding of the environment that we live in. So they keep this from us. So we don't know where we are and what we're doing and they use it and covet those uh, magna cum laude, summa cum laude coming out of Harvard and Yale. And they use them as tools of the trade to, to shape society. Hmm. So such an interesting take. Oh, it's an amazing thing because they're all connected and and really what throughout history, this is the fulcrum that everything is based on when we get into cybernetics and this battle between the state and the individual. It's really about this understanding how to communicate proper, mm-hmm. understanding how to listen properly. Uh, and we're going right back to grammar. So right. it doesn't, it shouldn't surprise anybody that if they've taken our grammar or our education for over a hundred years, then for us to actually start to build ourselves into something that that can that can you know like an alternate life that we want to create rather than fighting it this is the way that we do it that's so, so interesting i can't i'm going to pick up a copy of the trivium as soon as possible yeah. and check it out man that's yeah, really interesting. it sounds like you're kind of describing like a collection of or like a like a perennial philosophy almost yeah, uh, like of, of, of early man. It almost reminds me of the, 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 the personality, if you will, behind like astro theology in a way where it's like, oh, okay. So when you, as you really break this down, it's like instructions on how to live properly throughout the year and survive right. off the land and things like that. Oh, that's yeah. it. okay. It takes it back down to that very human level, that everyday yeah. kind of human. And yeah. we've gotten so far, far from the average normal human life in good ways and bad ways in this year 2023 mm-hmm. now so mm-hmm. please introduce us to how we got here because sure. honestly your work from what i've seen so far what i've been able to comb through which again yeah the way you described it is perfect how you condense a lot of big big topics into um like blurbs for people to to get and to read up on 
Um, it's so precise and it's so all encompassing and it goes to places like you mentioned at the end, your part four, it goes to places where a lot of people that we consider brethren and people that mostly agree with our foundations, which is like live free or die, that, that whole idea, we tend to, they, they tend to uh, have a little bit of a problem with a lot of what you say. And, and mm -hmm. I think it's interesting where this converges because yeah. a lot of us, me included years ago, I had to face the fact that a lot of my, uh, quote unquote heroes were manufactured mm -hmm. and a lot of us yeah. are getting used to that but i think your work has taken it to such a degree that it's really hard to look away it's really hard mm -hmm. to deny so it's like, hard I'm to make excited. an argument it's hard to make an argument on their behalf after you read our stuff and that's really what all we're trying to do is tell a story and make sure that everything that we say is backed by sources and and preferably of the primary type from their own words from their own literature because first of all I wanted to protect my mind. And so I go through all kinds of things to make, to ensure that my mind goes through all of this as unaffected as possible. Um, so, because that's what they are trying to do, mm -hmm. right? Influence into negative circles. And so this, uh, for everybody that's never visited our site, this is where you will land when you put in bulletproofpub.com. And this is the, uh, future perfect part one and so here we see some of the main quotes pulled out of the story just you know for those to get a quick feel and then all of these learn mores take us to the actual article okay wow so there we go. And we start By the way, here. your web design, man, is absolutely incredible. And this is, I yeah. think, a huge thing when it comes to people trying to pick out where, they, where they're getting their research. Mm -hmm. It needs to be really palatable. Yeah. And straightforward and simple. We're just trying to not confuse people. We're just trying to stick to the, the, the facts, yes. stick to the story, because we can tell the story without ever entering conspiracy theory. That's the best part. <laughs> <laughs> So that eliminates a whole argument, right? So that's one of the things we do. We're about eliminating excuses. Mm -hmm. And so this is what this work really sort of focuses on. So we start with this quote from Gregory Bateson. And we are going to get into Bateson a little later into part two. But this is really connecting both uh, the Paris Peace Conference of 1919 and then the cybernetics revolution of the 30s. And, and so there's a linear connection, familial connection here that we're going to sort of expose and show that we haven't seen anybody you know get into at all especially when it comes to this 1919 Paris stuff and the inquiry so Gregory Bateson calls the lecture from Versailles to cybernetics naming the two historic events of the 20th century the word cybernetics is familiar is it not but how many of you know what happened at Versailles in 1919 so he delivered that speech 1966 at Sacramento State College I have no and, idea what happened. <laughs> right. And so we're going to find out, right? I mean, some of us know, and I, I would imagine that the majority of us would be able to say something about Woodrow Wilson, uh, a war to end all wars and making this world safe for democracy. Mm. Right. Cause that's mm -hmm. where I was before I got into any of this, when I heard Paris peace conference, mm -hmm. was you don't really know there's, you know, they say Woodrow Wilson. 
Yeah, and they say that Woodrow Wilson was the author of all of this, but of course we know that you know that the presidents aren't. He was he was a like a intellectual president, the only intellectual president, scholarly president that there's been. But presidents aren't sitting at the Oval Office planning policy; they're listening to their advisors, and that really happened here with the inquiry. So we see, and why I included this first paragraph about the Pope is because I think this is a dialectic coming out of the Vatican is that they're calling for more moderate forms of counsel, uh, calm deliberations rather than a material force of arms. So they're trying to step away from bombs and guns and settling things and into a more di diplomatic mindset towards a new international moral force of law, which is interesting because all their plan is to remove morals. It's a mm. demoralization right. of America in every aspect and that may be sensational to some people at this time, but just sit back. Yeah. Because, you know, over this thing, you'll see that it's fairly obvious. So we see, I'm talking about the establishment of the inquiry, and it comes from a Felix Frankfurter memo. He's over in Europe in the late summer of 1917, and he recommends to Woodrow Wilson that they create this scholarly group from all Ivy League schools and they're all from the, the political or social sciences. So one of the things that we can, we got to understand here is that when we hear social science, think Marxist critical theory, because the first social science research uh, institute in America was 1906, the Rand Institute of Social Science. Now, Rand there is af named after the lady or the heiress that paid for it. It's mm -hmm. not the research and development Rand that we see in... Los Angeles, not far from where all of these guys, by the way, are cohabitating and visiting. And we'll get into that a little later. Mm. But the, the thing that we need to know here is it's Felix Frankfurter that's sending this first memo to create these guys. Oh, so this so is a picture of the inquiry when they, the first, the day after they arrived, uh, late December, 1918. And this is the Hotel Crillon in Paris. This is where they stayed. And we can see intelligence chiefs along the top Paris Peace Conference. Now, mm -hmm. these are American expe Expeditionary Forces official photographs. Okay. And we can see that down here. It says official. It's got numbers. You can chase this. I found all of the details in a catalog. So this is all super is official. Crazy. On the checkerboard floor. <laughs> on the checkerboard floor i did a video buddy and i took it down i'm gonna i'm gonna put it back out again because i i go into how i figured out this room because i wanted to know about those checkerboard floors and exactly where they were so i matched mm. it all that's awesome but yeah some people were laughing at me how deep i go but hey <laughs> we're on deep share right now so this, yeah like, absolutely. i think i found a home brother yeah as deep so, as you want <laughs> yeah so one of the things is people peruse all of these guys i'm not sure how many of these are familiar but they were not familiar to me i had to get to know them no i'm looking so, through these names I, i'm not completely familiar with any of them i don't think yeah yep. some names so, are vaguely familiar but. the one thing that at this point we want people to recognize is the bachelor of arts degrees the Rhodes mm -hmm. scholarships and the roles that they play in society so we see charles seymour standing in the middle of the back there yeah he's Double Bachelor of Arts, PhD, Skull and Bones, and a, and a founding father of uh, the Council on Foreign Relations. He's a future president at Yale. And there's Charles Seymour's going back through Yale history generations. 
Same with Clive Day. He's second on the right sitting. Clive Hart Day, the days go back all the way to the first days of Yale. He's also skull and bones. You can see uh, Bachelor of Arts Yale as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is the collection of the social science, political science, Bachelor of Arts, and the guy on the far left, James T. Shotwell, sitting there. He's mm-hmm. the guy that has <clears throat> been given the responsibility of putting these guys together. So that is another source that we we do provide. <clears throat> I see he's on the CFR as well. Yeah, he's a founding father of the CFR. He's the author of the International Labor Organization. So anybody that's been looking into the Marxist sort of approach and the socialist approach, how important labor has been to establishing their their policies and the direction of society. He's Shotwell's also the director of research mm-hmm. and the librarian at Carnegie Endowment. He's a real important international figure. These these guys are the first experts. So here we start to answer questions. You know, what's with the expert? Why are we always listening to the expert? Mm. What who made these people important? And that's all we see now. Right. Right. Which should question the validity of democracy wherever we're living, that we're we're just plainly listening to experts now. We see even our elected officials you know, uh, reverting to the opinion of experts. So Walter Lippmann, the, the, the founding father of a modern American journalism, he is the first member of this inquiry. Okay. And it's journalism, of course. So we, yeah, we start to see a link here between uh, journalism today and how it started then. So for everybody that thinks that the media was not corrupted at some point in your lifetime. It's been corrupted since before your grandparents were born. And so these are inconvenient things that we, we come across and these little breakings of my heart has have been happening for about 12 years. And the only guy still standing is Kurt Russell. Fuck. Yeah, dude. What an awesome synchronicity. Yeah. He gets political a little bit, but, and I think that his leaning is conservative. Or Republican, it right? It is, but yeah, which since, I fall under neither side of that. Yeah, dog and I am, yeah, I am. But he's also able- Hollywood royalty and Disney yeah. kid too, and I like to look right. conveniently at that. I'm yes. one of those people that you and I talk about often. Where I just don't want to. I just want to pretend he's uh, he's totally. Yes, clean. you know him and Goldie yep. are just totally fine. <laughs> and I think you and I had that conversation online. <laughs> he's been my favorite actor since escape from New York and the thing. And he's, he's stayed Same fairly way. consistent and, and stayed out of trouble. So you're right. He is like a royalty in Hollywood and he was a child actor. Right. Right. And we see what goes on with our child actors. Now they're, oh, absolutely. they're social engineers too. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but, and it also, it's like, you know, we, we talked earlier about the whole um, controlled opposition is uh, more to do with subject matter than it is individuals. Mm-hmm. And, yep. you know, most people, it's kind of like, I I believe most people don't even know what they're a part of most of the time. Yeah. That's yeah. just my take. Well, entire fields are established on faulty premises. So you can right, be exactly. in that field and think that everything's legit, but you, you've never looked at the origins of it, like medicine right. or Absolutely. genetics, which is another one we're going through, or Darwin's theory of evolution or relativity. These are all right. still theories. And so that means that, you know, they're, they're not laws. Right. So, you know, 
it, it encouraged <laughs> me to go look and, and just what that did. around because everything else is being suppressed. <laughs> yes. And so we lean on the experts thinking that this all must have been thought out in the past and we must just trust that they came to the, the finest conclusions and right. Well, gonna, you had the first part, right? <laughs> it was yeah, definitely gonna, all thought out in the past. Yes. But we're going to discredit and show that the intentions and motivations were totally different. All right. So these are, so these are the guys that usurp state department influence, get in with Woodrow Wilson. And really what we see here is the, is a deep state takeover. We talk about those things mm-hmm. nowadays, but it really happened a long time ago. And it probably even happened before these guys, but That's this, this is the modern uh, rendition. And I think that everybody can kind of relate to this and really take uh, parallels from how this developed and see today. And I think that's the most important is for people to see how this affects them today. Mm-hmm. So Bateson called the treaty of Versailles, one of the great sellouts in the history of our civilization. And I agree. The treaty of Versailles was like a Carthaginian victory for the allied. They, they vindictively imposed measures, financial, uh, fines and 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 retribution against germany that was impossible to recover from and so i think out of this it becomes the weimar and so you know this is how it is established and this is why he's saying it's one of the great sellouts in the history of our civilization because this this all of this that happens in paris spurs world war ii it's written and, and what I say about these two wars is they're really just one with an intermission because of the connections that, that are there between both of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the inquiry members that established the league of nations, there's at least eight or nine of them that are in San Francisco to establish the Un- United nations, including the leader of the inquiry, Isaiah Bowman and James T. Shotwell as well. So here is straight out of his book. So this is, what I would consider primary source material. Mm -hmm. This is somebody that was there in the room. He's writing a book about it. And he said, the peace treaty was not to be a return to the old diplomacy, but the establishment of a new world order. Okay. So you can go look look at those things in our library. You can go look on, on, in our library and find these books. And, and we've left the pages even open a lot of the times to the actual quotes to make it easy. That's excellent. Okay. And so here is a great quote from Frank I Cobb. At the time, he's the editor of New York World. Lippman goes and works there with him. And within a year or two, that whole news outlet is gone. So I think this is related to what Oscar Calloway said under congressional record about J.P. Morgan taking over the newspapers. We start to see some of the actual proof of this. There are inquiry members that get established as the, like, they'll take an editor that isn't agreeing with them or actually is reporting on some of these uh, industrialists behave negative behaviors and they're taking those editors out and putting editors in from the inquiry Mm -hmm. so that none of this, none of this stuff reaches the papers anymore. So this is really established by uh, not only Edward Bernays, but the public relations guy for Rockefeller from the Atlantic train accident and stuff. Some of these things were really weighing down and costing the Rockefellers a lot of money. So they hired these guys to, basically be gaslighters wow one and their guys ivy lee ivy uh led better lee and of course everybody knows who edward bernays is he's the father of propaganda right 
So I'm going to leave some of this for people to read themselves, but we, oh, yeah. we start getting into the manufacturing of public consent and the entering wedge. This is what Walter Lippmann calls the expert when they invent it. He is a, he is a form of expertness. This is straight out of his book, <laughs> Liberty and News. Not sure if it's right here, but they're a form of, a form of expertness uh, between the private citizen and the vast environment in which he's entangled. <laughs> so when you think about that, we talk about experts, but he's calling it an entering wedge. And so that implies that there is an intent to get between people and the truth. And so what he did was really uh, recreate media into the punditry and opinionated stuff that we see today. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we often forget the word medium, the word media. It means like in between. It means like transition. It's it's something holding something in between. And Ooh, that's, that's good. I never heard that, of that before. Literally what they've been doing all along. And we can point to that in basically every conspiracy theory, every proven conspiracy. Like that's really their tactic is to hijack and, you know, tell us what the light is. Tell us mm -hmm. what the truth is. Tell us what all the even all the interesting stuff to uncover in a lot of cases is what right. they like to uh, to hand over to us. Yeah, let's not forget that the television is a one-way conversation. It never listens to you. <laughs> That's a great right? way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> so here we have in Paris, uh, the head of the uh, Committee on Public Information. This is the propaganda division of the government established under executive order. And so here we have George Creel, Walter Lippmann, and Edward Bernays all, all working together here. So those are three faces of the propaganda Mount Rushmore. So this is why this becomes important for this conversation, because, you know, we're seeing three of the founders of propaganda together uh, uh, corralling the narrative out of Paris. Right. So the American people and everybody outside of Paris weren't getting the real information. There was all kinds of things. Even the muckrakers, the leader of the muckrakers, the, the guy that was in head ahead of the the international news outlet. He's a personal friend and the biographer of Walter Lippmann, Ray Standard Baker. And he's in that picture of the Paris peace conference. So we start to see there's relationships that we never knew, right? We think right. these are two separate people or disparate organizations and institutions, but no, we start to see that there's total interlocking. It's all just the same people. And it's a ruse that they're trying to put over on the, the American public. You mentioned it's the year 2023. We are in the 100th anniversary of both public opinion and Bernays' crystallizing public opinion. Wow. Wow. One hell of a hundred so, years. So we Let's celebrate not this. Another 100. Yeah, we celebrate like this, okay? we're gonna. Yeah, this is how we celebrate, man. That's Let's right. We're going to show what this is and what's going on. So wow. here's where I talk a little bit about Bernays' He, he's the one that coins, or uh, Lippmann, I'm sorry. This is where he coins manufacture of consent. I found it in Liberty and, New and the News. Everybody points to public opinion as where that was first written, but it's in the mm -hmm. book before that. I'm kind of proud of finding that. Yeah, yeah. Because nobody else has found that. I've read all of his works, and, and they are amazing. So he, 
He also coins the term stereotype. He also is responsible, according to many, for Cold War hmm. uh, and a few more. Yeah, shell shock, probably. <laughs> <laughs> and wow. so here is a great quote out of Liberty in the News. Everywhere today, men must deal with questions more intricate than any church or school had prepared them to understand. Increasingly, they know that they cannot understand them if the facts are not quickly and steadily available. Increasingly, they are baffled because the facts are not available, and they are wondering whether government by consent can survive in a time when the manufacture of consent is an unregulated private enterprise. Mm. Okay, so that is really explaining today. Yeah, man. That's kind of describing exactly what's happening now. Mm -hmm. And so here's his his famous tome, Public Opinion, the, mm -hmm. the picture on the cover shows a great image. We talk about pictures being worth a thousand words. Mm -hmm. Okay, we can see that somebody's thinking there and the world is influencing his thoughts. And so the great society had grown so furiously into colossal dimensions by the application of technical knowledge. It was made by engineers who had learned to use exact measures and quantitative analysis. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> But it could not be governed, men began to discover, by men who thought deductively about rights and wrongs. It could be brought under human control only by the technic which had created it. Mm. So we wonder why. Uh, well, so I basically, say, we're God. Let us handle it. Yeah. And so we have 100 years of hindsight to see where that's gotten us. Absolutely. And where and all the squirrely directions it's taken. Yes. And so this is the reliance on the expert or the, what he calls the technic a hundred years ago. Now, do they go into great detail of their, 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 I'm still very fuzzy on motive. I mean, because it's not like they're mm. saying this will corral everybody and Beautiful. finally we'll be in control. You know, right. they're, they're not going to write that, nor that I, nor do I think they would. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, even you said this, you know, this group was put together and there's probably been groups before that, but this is where our, you know, a good frame of reference should start for this episode, for, you know, this conversation. Um, who put them together and what was, right. like, what, what was the ultimate purpose of this? That is a beautiful question. And I'm sorry and we'll, if I'm jumping ahead. No, you know. <laughs> I think it's perfect timing for the first question and we can get into the second one after that, but you're right. asking what the, where the goal is and what they're doing. It's yeah. found kind of right here in this quote, the manufacturer of public consent by unregulated private enterprise, certainly nothing to do to us living in the 21st century, Lippmann and companies, children of the future, which I consider us because they were talking about the children of the future. This is for the children of the future. And right. Bateson says that, three or four generations later of people that will hate me. <laughs> so Lippmann talks about the great society. Mm -hmm. Okay. And this is LBJ has the great society. Yes. JFK has uh, the new frontier. All of the presidents have these sayings. And so they are, they are directions that they are going to put out there so that it's a goal for all of America. And they try to steer society towards these. And so the great society really is something that Graham Wallace wrote. He's a founding member of the Fabians. Mm -hmm. And so we start to like uh, Lippmann and Graham Wallace are super close personal friends. When Lippmann goes to Europe, he stays at Wallace's house and Wallace is a founding member of the Fabians. So we start to see these connections. Yeah. So they're really pushing people towards this great society. And what they had to do was uh, establish a liberal mindset. 
okay. that the, the general public had to be swayed and pushed and nudged, as Cass Sunstein might say, into where we're all of the liberal uh, disposition, even if we are calling ourselves conservative. Now, what this is, is moving of the Overton window. Mm-hmm. Okay, and, okay. And, and shifting. So out of this comes the changing of the definition of liberalism. So a lot of people are like, I can't believe how much the, the definition of liberalism has changed. And, mm-hmm. and so that's where this happens too. And Lippmann is deeply responsible for this. He's the one coining the term neoliberal. Okay. Uh, I think he's even involved in coining the term neocon. This, uh, there's PNAC involvement, like the founder of PNAC. Uh, mm-hmm. Billy Crystal's father. Oh, Lippmann's involved in all of these guys later in his life. Lippmann is part of the Walter Lippmann colloquium. We start to see uh, Ludwig von Mises, uh, um, one of the other famous economists, Friedrich Hayek, are all there. And in this group, they they coin these terms, and you can see that they start to really uh, disseminate this message out into the society and they're shifting the Overton window and we've had a hundred years. So it's moved so much that it's e- easy to see, but in real time, it's hard because it's, oh. it's a slow move. And this is really the game plan of the Fabians is that they found that uh, to move people just one step at a time and to be to to have a, a war of attrition because their their name comes from Fabius, who who famously back in in Greek or ancient times, he was the one that invented war of attrition to starve out populations rather than to blow them up and kill them. Right. This is what the Fabians are named after. And so you can see now sort of how this all of the interests start to parallel whether you're a corporation or an internationalist or a zionist or a imperialist like an anglophile uh, anglo-american it's all about world expansion Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's all about like a corporation wants to expand around the world just the same as a as the american idea of the foreign policy of imperialism or colonialism the french colonial era all of this that you can see a lining up of all of these including the fabians and uh it's it's interesting that like i'm assuming that we could or actually this is more of a question for you what do you think mm-hmm. what's your take on like their intent their personal intent as you know you've read so much of their work do you think they really believed that they were taking humanity towards a better place yes now granted we we understand okay so you think yes okay for sure that's a really that's a really interesting thing to to kind of hone in on and you know of course that's gone astray here and there but i wonder if that's still somehow intact you know that that at least that intention beneath it i mean this could you know have us reframing how we uh how we think about what we're going to do with these people once Mm -hmm. (laughs) once they're all exposed right yeah and i would say that a lot of these internationalists they do truly believe that this uh, moral uh, international force is going to be far more beneficial. They do believe, I think, that uh, this is going to end the war mm. because I don't, you know, it's very uh, compartmentalized. It's very military. And so only those at the very top are really going to know. I think a lot of these people are really well-meaning people. 
This right. is why I call them tools of the trade. They're not, they're not them. They, those, that hierarchy enslaving you. These are the tools. These are all the liberal artists. This is how they manipulate people to start steering society. And as you said, they do it with a good thing. Like this yep. liberal arts way is the way, yeah. but they use, they turn it on its head. And that is of course their most ancient tactic is to use yep. the truth against us and to twist to their means. Yep. And I would say that it's a noble lie. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's the it noble turns. lie that they use to establish all of this mm. uh, for an unattainable ideal. Right, right. Right. None of this to, to, to world peace is really in my mind anyways, unattainable. I think it's, mm. it's crazy to think that we would ever get to that point. And we see that kind of pattern common to a lot of things that they're really going after an unattainable ideal. And they're using all of these liberal artists, these intelligent creatives, just as the same as they would manipulate a, a music star that is a good songwriter. Right. Right. So, yeah, man, I, I think I think you're you're hitting the the nail on the head, man. Yeah. It's, so, it is completely unattainable. It's almost like the Buddhist idea of grasping water. It's about trying to have control in a in a place where we actually don't have any control over this experience. Yeah. And I think it's on a macro level. It's the ego taking over. It's like trying to end racism or right. end drug use. You know, it's just never going to happen. Right. So. Here's a picture of Walter Lippmann for those that don't know who he or what he looked like. And so mm -hmm. here is a, a, a great exercise, something that I am always doing because I recognize the importance of language. So I broke down the two definitions here of government and cybernetics because they both mean the same thing. Gouverneur, to govern, to steer or control as a pilot would a ship. Ments or mentis is the mind. So government really does mean to control the mind. And that's not a conspiracy theory. That's You can go look at the etymology all you want. And, and that's a consens consensus right. uh, conclusion, right? Like even mainstream people will say that that is true. Right. Uh, and they'll then, just so we frame at, it in a different way. They'll be they'll be like, yeah, of course. I mean, when a group of people are are governed, they're obviously going to flock in the same, mm -hmm. you know, yes. they'll just spin it like that. Yeah. And I would say that really it's self-evident. It's only just people's fear of admitting the realities <laughs> of our world. But, yeah. You know. yeah. <laughs> and so we see that the. The they're almost synonymous government and cybernetics. Because cybernetics also means to steer a ship as as would a governor. Wow. Okay. Now, this is why I started to link these two, because really the inquiry becomes uh, established to, to sort of govern government, just in the same way cyberneticians do. That's okay? wild, man. Yeah. And so what an interesting just, connection. Cause I mean, you even mm -hmm. say that ancient word, it sounds like government, even though it's, it's supposedly the root of cybernetics. It's, it's yeah. the same basic concept. Kybernetes is the actual source of that word. Mm -hmm. And it's established by Norbert Wiener who, who founded the whole thing. And we'll get into that. Uh, so we're just going to quickly go over some of the organizations that were involved in the creation of the league of nations, because like we talked about at the very beginning, uh, the mainstream narrative is that it's Woodrow Wilson, his 14 points that he wrote mm -hmm. that establishes um, the League of Nations. 
So from the 14 points comes the League of Nations. The mainstream narrative is that it's Walter Lippmann. We go through the paperwork and we find that it's all of these groups. Okay. And it's uh, the top one there is, um, what is it now? I can't remember. The Cosmopolitan Club is there, the Metropolitan Club, mm -hmm. uh, the Century Association. So this oh, is a major, okay. major uh, place where all of these guys group, conglomerate. They're having cigars and cognac, and they're sitting in smoky rooms at gentlemen's clubs, and they are devising foreign policy. Right. And it's a very familiar symbol around, around the, the letters. Yeah. Of course. And so one of the things the viewers will pick up on is that uh, the Council on Foreign Relations logo there, the man on the horse, it says Ubiqwe, and that is the, the motto for the pilgrims as well, and that means everywhere. Interesting. So the main group is Bryce group that establishes the League of Nations. There's in the conversations with all these people. And what these people collectively are, are pacifists. So we can see a dialectic sort of happening where right. the whole world at that point was was ready for the end of the war. And they'd, they'd made it into such a thing that people were desperate for just the end of the war. And we can see how they use that today and manipulating people because people just wanted a new normal or a go back to normal. Right. You of course. Hear people saying that normal to begin with. <laughs> yeah. And just so that they could vacation, they'll take the shot. And so you see the government doing this even back then. These are mm -hmm. old time established, right? Techniques that have worked forever. The only difference now is that we do have the internet and we do have the capability of understanding these and, and getting ahead of it. Whereas I don't think that they did up until now. So, Very loose, random connection, the man on the horse. That is also a symbol for the lost tribe of Dan, yeah. which is pretty wild. Yeah, okay. Supposed so, you know, lost 13th tribe uh, symbolism, mm, maybe. Who knows? Yep, and that is something that I don't know a lot about. That's fair. But that's fair. you Filling just saying that, man, it hits me in a way. You know, I use my senses a lot. And when I hear things, sometimes it kind of clicks. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. It's like I may have to explore that further, right? Yep. <laughs> so Viscount James Bryce, he he it's the Bryce group that actually starts the war. Okay, so there you can see down near the end of that paragraph, Committee on Alleged German Outrages. So mm. he created this this uh this like unit of people and they and they write up this report on on the bad things that the Germans are doing, and it actually today is considered total propaganda. Wow. It's all lies. So you can see that uh, World War I was established on false premises. And, and so this Bryce is also there in, in the remaking of Europe and, and the writing of the Treaty of Versailles. So it's very much like Halliburton and the Iraq War and, mm. and Cheney. We start to see that it's this has really been going on for a long time. This So this like evokes aggression towards german towards yeah. the german and so it's interesting because we always pin like the sinking of the lusitania on yeah. on what you know they just to be a little paranoid when i think of a lot of conspiracy theory that that floats around 
a lot of it is out there on purpose. A lot of it's out there to cover for bigger things. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting. I've never heard any of this about the provoking aspect from World War mm -hmm. One. And all we ever hear is the Lusitania in conspiracy circles. Yep. It's interesting. And it's flimsy, yeah, now, you know, it's a flimsy yeah. one. And especially when you when you go through the private uh, diaries of Colonel Edward House, he talks about it the day before it happens. He's talking to King George the day before the Lusitania sinks, and he predicts it. Now, <laughs> I think that it was done on purpose, and this is more dialectics, right? Because mm, this yeah. is this is I think to to get American people motivated, you needed more than than a a report, and maybe and and this kind of is what happened is that they were ramping it up and trying to trigger the American people to get mad. Yeah, yeah. And so these these reports that come out don't really get anybody anybody going, but when they blow up a a cruise liner with American people, now that can really motivate people into action and start signing up to go to war. And and yeah, we saw that after nine eleven. Yeah. So we see that again in 9-11. We see it in both Iraq wars, how they try to, to get people upset enough to, to get behind the country for war. Yep. And in World War One, it was the Committee on Public Information. Mm. It was throughout the entire, probably 1916, 1917, it was the largest propaganda campaign ever put on the American people. And it, and it really just persuaded the people to not fight to, to get out of their isolationist viewpoints, to mm -hmm. stop being pacifists. And this is where America becomes interventionalists. Because nice. until this point, there was uh, really no American president had been on foreign soil. So in one of our videos, I show the moment that well, uh, Woodrow Wilson steps onto French soil. It's actually televised. And I kind of pause it at that moment and say, this is where really a lot changes. Right. If wow. you and it get... seems like the propaganda has only downgraded over time. It seems less convincing. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. For what? Just everything. It seems like, like if, for instance, you know, we brought up 9-11 briefly, like, and the provoking beforehand. Think about the the, the half-assed job they did with the, uh, the interview in a cave with Osama bin right. Laden, right? Yeah. I mean, right. no one can find this guy, right? I mean, yeah. Bill Cooper famously talked about this right before he was gunned down at his home mm -hmm. but uh <laughs> it just seems to like they've been getting sloppy or something because this what you're describing and showing right now is like blueprints like yeah. literal like bulletproof if you will mm -hmm. uh blueprints on how to steer a nation yeah and propaganda is meant for the lowest common denominator they they don't intend on fooling the intelligent among us because the majority aren't and so they right. just need to create a movement. So when we look at the propaganda posters that are created and the stories that come out of there about beasts of Berlin and Baghdad and all of this, it's all just propaganda. It's all just bullshit stories to get people motivated. Mm -hmm. Makes so sense. The League of Two Enforced Peace is another one of these groups that's really involved in the creation of the League of Nations. And so we see the names here, William Howard Taft, yeah. uh, Theodore Roosevelt, Elihu Root, um, Henry Stimson, a little lower. Okay, now this mm -hmm. is uh, this is really where the House of Truth comes from. But House, uh, what of I truth. want, I have not yeah, heard of that. Yeah, we'll get into that maybe. <laughs> but uh, so all of these guys are skull and bones, and all of them are Phi Beta Kappa. Hmm. Roosevelt is the only one that's not uh, skull and bones. Roosevelt and Taft are Masons. 
I was going to say, I think, yeah. Rosenberg. But all four of those guys, and they all are together, right? These are, we're talking about successive presidencies, mm -hmm. Taft, Roosevelt, and Wilson. And so, mm -hmm. uh, so remember that these guys are all Phi Beta Kappa. Mm -hmm. uh, skull and bones. And people hear that and well, not everybody, but some people hear that and they just assume, so they were buddies in college. Right. <laughs> and they don't understand the implications of what they were probably being led by the nose into as well. Yeah. That's the initiation into all of this. Right. And so uh, Pilgrims. The, inter the interesting part. So here we see ubiquite and that means here and everywhere. Okay. That's the Anglo American sort of confluence that's the british and the americans and so the queen that just passed away she was a member and the new king charles the third or whatever he's going to be he's a member and so uh but here we're talking about the league to enforce peace this stolen bones taft roosevelt stimson root we see also part of these groups is richard t eli he's hugely influential a lot of these inquiry members are uh Eliists, for a better word, they're they're uh, followers of of Eli economics. So we see then after twenty years of coming out of school, being taught by Eli that this progressive economics theory uh, extends through his his students, and we see all of that happening with everybody here. They're they're teaching the next generation, right. and then they have somebody that's a great orator and teacher, and then that person is. Uh, designated as the teacher for the next generation after that. And so we see all of these guys, or a lot of them, like Felix Frankfurter goes to Harvard Law and becomes a professor there, funded by Warburg. His salary's funded by all of these guys. And he he is really credited with establishing what is there at Harvard Law now. And he, he teaches the next generation of lawyers mm -hmm. after being taught by Louis Brandeis. And again, so we, we have that word ubiqui you mentioned. Yeah, and yeah. just just for the listeners, uh, the image on this Pilgrim's okay. pamphlet or, or book, yep. Yep. we've got now not only a horse, but also an eagle on the back with a lion. And yeah. man, yeah, my head's exploding. And you, so, can, see, separate you can see, yep, you can see industry sort of depicted there boats yep. and so you know there's all a lot sort of to, di to dissect there oh absolutely so here's another group the league of nations union this is where we see the the confluence of the Rhodes round table so you've got guys like sir edward gray here um lord milner the uh, robert table. cecil okay so this is incredible this is a book that i found when when looking in vancouver Okay, that's Disc uh, Viscount Cecil. That's who I'm talking about, Lord Robert mm -hmm. Cecil. He's a key member of all of this, and he wrote a book. This is his autobiography. It's called A Great Experiment, and that's exactly what he's talking about, the League of Nations. Holy shit. Okay, so this is another key word to remember, the word experiment, because they're all using it, whether they're experimenting on the U.S. Constitution through the jurisprudence, like mm -hmm. Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. and Frankfurter and... and, and uh, Brandeis or, or all aspects. It's a, it's a giant experimentation. They're, they're really this uh, they're trying to create a rupture 
Mm. So out of this group, also Stephen Duggan, he's the apostle of internationalism. I don't expect anybody to know any of these names, but this is why I include that is because he's really considered by his his contemporaries as the man yeah. when it comes to the, the establishment of internationalism. Okay, And there's some key guys working in the inquiry that are major experts in international law. Mm-hmm. There's at least two of them that are in there writing all of this, too. So we see J.P. Morgan Council yeah, in this group. Names. We see Zionists. Uh, these Felix Frankfurt or Julian Mack are there in Paris as part of the Zionist delegation in Frankfurt. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Wilson wouldn't let him in to be a part of the American delegation. So really? he's he's known as the cock level, the stirring spoon. And he's got his toes in every delegation. And he's like the, the mover and shaker there. And he's about five foot four. This is the guy that (laughs) this is the guy that goes into the Library of Congress, takes the incriminating papers of both him and Brandeis, and walks right out the front door. Holy shit! Totally illegal, never charged. And that's proof that we know that they did that. Yep. Jesus Christ. So here's another one, Frank Walsh. If anybody's familiar with the Walsh Commission, this is where they started investigating all of these tax-exempt foundations. And there's several of these investigations, but Walsh is a part of this group. So he's Mm. an insider, (laughs) just as Frank Church was a member of the CFR from the 70s investigation into uh, the media and the CIA. The head of the investigation is a Council on Foreign Relations member. Yeah, it's all rigged. Yeah, and every single one of these investigations, I've gone into the the papers of them. They are incriminating. They should have gone to jail, but they get sidetracked. Of course. Every single one. And they're because they're being run by controlled opposition. Right, right. Okay, this is a word we all hear now. So then one of these other clubs... This is where we get into, we start stepping away from the government influence and we start getting into the arts and literature. We, we see Virginia Woolf and her husband, Leonard Woolf, are part of this uh, 1917 club. And in there is Aldous Huxley. So everybody drink up. Here we go. That's our, that's our first mention. You can see that there's <laughs> Fabians in there. Ramsey McDonald is the first PM of the Labour Party. So when we're talking about the fa- the Labour Party, that comes from Fabianism. That's not conspiracy. That is actual documented historical fact that that out of the Fabian movement was created the British Labour Party. How about that? Okay, and we see who's involved here. Walter Rothschild, John Maynard Keynes, Bertrand Russell, and Ludwig Wittgenstein. They These guys are, when you uh, internet search the most influential philosophers of the 20th century these are them oh yeah yeah absolutely that's why i'm recognizing half of them it's incredible as like required college level reading right (laughs) that i remember what's and we'll get we're going to get into that i'm going to there's a point Mm -hmm. to be made about that but we see all of these groups together okay so it's not really about woodrow wilson and the 14 points Mm -hmm. you know of the inquiry especially walter Lippmann. And David Hunter Miller, one of these expert international law guys, they're really the guys that write the 14 points. They just give credit to Wilson. I mean, in in Wilson's new freedom, the first thing he says is that I did not write this book. (laughs) And so it's, it's really Louis Brandeis that writes the new freedom. Many historians look to Louis Brandeis as the architect of the new freedom campaign, which is really the first, it's the first 
progressive platform to win. The first right. po- progressive platform really was the Bull Moose Party with Theodore Roosevelt, just in the lead up to the 1912 election. Okay, and this is Walter Lippmann, and all of these men are highly influential in all of this. So yeah, you're really blowing my mind. I'm like having flashbacks to all the college campuses I've been on, let alone my own, where it's like all, a lot of these names sound familiar as buildings you know named yes, after these great totally. men or family lineages and everything yep. and so it's like you know i kind of got it before but now it's like okay college is a liberal thing college yep. is a product from you know that's something that people all of us have a tendency we, our boxes are too small and we always have to jump back out to the bigger boxes because there's always a bigger one and the idea that like school is just something that's everywhere all the time always and that this is mm-hmm. how it's always been ain't the fucking case at yeah. all this yeah. is a modern invention yeah so i'm gonna speed up my <laughs> i jump. i jumped ahead with the call yeah though no, i'm gonna speed up <laughs> my process here because i kind of went through this before and i know how fast it's or how much time it's going to take that's so cool I, again we want people to go to your website yeah. to bulletproofpub.com and dig in because yeah and also just to let everybody know this is like the perfect format to fucking screen grab and share yes. to your heart's content. Totally, it's, baby. I, that's like the best part about it, you know? Images, words, boom. Yeah. I'm saying take it all. <laughs> I don't really need any credit or recognition. I'm on record saying that on multiple times. It's yes, I'm not as are. important as this information. None of us are. So I encourage everybody to go to either our archives where we have all of these primary source material or search them out. That's why we've given you the the title because you can't just put in proceed proceedings of the inter-allied labor conference and have it come up. Right. Okay. Or, or at least you can't just learn about the, the formation of the league of nations by putting in, you know, teach me how it happened. Oh, absolutely not. No, you need to know which authors we're talking about what, and you also have to know what you're saying right now. You're giving us so much context. Yeah. For places that no one would normally look. Yeah. And it's so one of the interesting things here is that they, the, the, their credentials say socialist on them. And, and some of these people get upset. It's right in the, the one here on the mm-hmm. top, second from the left. So I encourage everybody to just go read that stuff. It is so enlightening. That's so crazy. Okay. So these are the actual documents. We've got all of their autographs. So if you think that, I'm just sort of pulling these names out of thin air. This is the documents that they all come from. The actual documents, them writing uh, the proceedings and how it all went down. So I offer a little bit about the Century Club. They're called Centurions. We've got some interior shots of what it what it would look like. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it looks Man, like. I've heard models. of the Century Club before and I can't remember the context. It's so important. They yeah. can, they have their own magazines. This is one of the things about propaganda. You have to have a brick and mortar building for mm-hmm. as an institution, and then you have to have a, a periodical for information. So the two pillars of propaganda are institutions and information. You need a place to conglomerate and talk, and then you need somewhere to disseminate the message. And it you can like see church. the church. <laughs> exactly. Well, the, that's who originated the term propaganda. To the church. To, Yep, and it was part of the 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 uh, counter 
Reformation. So all of these people left and they wanted to try to bring all of their flock back under the Catholic Church. And this was to propagate the faith. So when you look at the origins of the etymology of propaganda, it does go back to church. That's awesome. And and to protect their ideology. Mm-hmm. We were talking about invisible things, right? Oh, yes. Earlier. And this is really what the work that we do. We're, we're pointing out the things everybody can't see because this is how they take advantage of us. Whether it's a virus we can't see with our naked eye or a war beyond the horizon, we don't see them and we have to take the word of an entering wedge. Yes. Okay, I'm not going to use expert anymore because they're entering wedges. I like that. Yeah, entering wedge has now replaced expert. Yes. So we see here all three presidents of that 1912 election wow. were centurions. So either There's way, the American went. hero, Theodore Roosevelt, right? Yeah. He can do no harm. He's all about the national parks. He's a father. He's, he's, he's the epitome of make America great again, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> he is the father of progressivism. He's the face of it. That's nuts. Yeah. It's the bull moose party. He comes back from mm. Africa. There's a that's whole true. detail there that leads up to this that's very strange that I haven't gotten into, but he comes back in a hurry from Africa to, to participate in all of this. Uh-huh. And it's his, this is really why the New Republic was created, and we can get into that hopefully too. Cool. So this is a guy that's really highly influential to Louis Brandeis, to me, is, is one of the faces of the New World Order as well. He's, he's a Supreme Court justice, highly contentious election by Woodrow Wilson. I think this is where we start to see the quid pro quo, mm-hmm. this for that. Give me this and I'll give you that. He's involved in, in the creation of Israel, 1917. So a lot of us think about 1948. It's actually yeah. 1917 that the Balfour Declaration is written straight to a Rothschild. Uh, all of the event, all of the sitting down and outside of the Treaty of Versailles, all of the conversations about the international movement happened on Rothschild land at the inter-allied uh, buildings. So this is a property that after this, 1919 Paris Peace Conference, that that property is sold from the Rothschilds to the American government. I have the receipt, and today it's the American embassy in Paris. Wow. So this isn't conspiracy theory. We just we see it's networking. It's it's you we have a financer and we have goals and we have ideas that we want to establish. And so it's just it's people getting together and conspiring. Get over it. They'd be so proud today. They'd they'd look around and see how effortlessly yep. they their 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 children and children's children get to walk around in this life that they've built hidden from everyone else. Yeah. So easily. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say that they might be concerned about the internet. That would be about the only thing. Right. You know right. the fear of us actually figuring things out and communicating that way that we are. And they're doing their damnedest to turn the internet into any other source of information, just yeah. like they've handled it, handled them before. Yeah. But I think it's, you know, the internet has too much of our heart and spirit in it to like allow it to ever get taken over entirely. Maybe. Yeah. yeah we're hoping, right? Yeah. Let's hope. So you were asking about the house of truth earlier. We're going to touch yes. on this because it's important to understand that a lot of these guys that lived in the same house, one mile from the white house were there in Paris too. Okay. Now this is very strange information that is absolutely documented historical fact that nobody's talking about uh, except for um, Brad Snyder, who is a professor of history, I think at Georgetown 
He's one of the weirdest looking guys you'll ever meet, but he is the only one that I've seen. And this is really where I found it that is written about the house of truth. Wow. Okay. Is he staying? Is he still with us and everything? Oh yeah. He's, he's younger than me. He's like the next generation. He's the next generation. So you can see the thickness of this book. It is an extraordinary story. And so this is one of the books that I use to tell the house of truth story. So here we see the the original residents and the the guy at the top here, uh, Grosvenor Valentine. Can't remember his first name, but he's the owner of the house of truth. He's working with uh, William Howder Taft's administration, as is Felix Frankfurter. He's uh, State Department counsel. So he's going to bat to defend against the government and any people that are like conscientious objectors or anybody that's opposed the war, or speaking up against the war. It's Frankfurter on behalf of Taft, Stimson, Root and the American government that really tries to slam these people down. Mm-hmm. And who's, who's the other guy? Who's the guy on the left there? Okay. So this is uh Winfred uh, Dennison. He's kind of inconsequential here. Okay. He commits suicide by jumping in front of a train. That's really the only thing I know. Uh, the other guy he? that's the, the real important guy here also to understand is a Canadian Loring C. Christie. Mm-hmm. He, he ends up being in Paris, the right-hand man of the Canadian prime minister Borden. Wow. He's really like the, the, the personal advisor as Frankfurter is kind and Littman who also are living at the house of truth together become for Woodrow Wilson. Okay. Now this is where it gets interesting that we also see members of the British round table. So okay. we talk about Cecil Rhodes and this uh, Rhodes scholarship and the Rhodes yeah. round table. This is there. We've got key guys living at this house with these Americans a block from the white house. And they're they're there on foreign business on behalf of the British government. Now this actually just totally shocked me. I couldn't believe that this was going on, that these kinds of friendships actually existed, but it is true that Walter Lippmann, Felix Frankfurter, Eustace Percy, uh, Philip Kerr. These are two right beside uh, the, the British prime minister, David Lloyd George. They are the personal advisors to them. Mm-hmm. So we see out of this house, uh, the key advisors to three of the big four in Paris. They're all friends. They were their roommates. They're hanging out. They went to school together. Mm-hmm. Holy shit. So, you, so you'd think just on the surface that these people would have different lives from different countries and they're on behalf of their own governments. But really, it's just uh, this undercurrent of manipulation going on. And, and the only real uh, associations that count are their secret ones. And so you say they're all living at this house of yep. truth. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like this. Is it kind of like a fraternity in a way? Or is it's it just all, like, you know, shared housing? They're all Phi Beta Kappa. They're all okay. Harvard Law. Okay. So Louis Brandeis is a is an often uh, honored guest, as is Oliver Wendell Holmes here. And those are two Supreme Court justices. And they don't live there, but they are there all the time. And this is what we call a political salon. Yeah. And yeah. Okay. So that's what I was kind of curious about. Yeah. So nobody's really familiar with that. It's just really a, a aristocratic, rich, elite sort of place where people talk politics and society and, and try to establish policies together because they're very influential in society so that they, they try to align their beliefs and 
and what they want to see in the future world together. And they do it through art and, 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 mm. and all of that. And so that's really the establishment of the political salon. It started in during the French revolution. So this idea comes over from, from Europe. It's and not an idea that's very popularly known. And uh, no. it's just, now that you're talking about it, it does pop up in pop culture, but not very yeah. often. There was a show that I saw a few years back with like Bill Murray and a few other notable characters, and they're all politicians and they're all quote unquote living in this big like brownstone mansion, basically. Right. But it's like, uh, you know, they have their wives living at home with their families, but they are there most of the time. It's right. Very weird. Yeah, they weren't, they were still bachelors, all of them. This uh, Walter Lippman marries his wife and they actually move into the upper bedroom. She's the only woman to ever live there. Otherwise, it was just a bunch of uh, progressive minded uh, bachelors. Right. So in this, I mean, the only connection I was making was just just the very broad stroke of how this whole movement is kind of against the family. Yeah. You know, so it's like, yep. oh, it would be some lonely fuckers living in a house yep. together, not happy with their wives or something. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so in the Pilgrim Society, you can see the associations there. You can go look it up yourself. These are mm -hmm. these are admitted. So yep. you can Rock, start to Lord see Rothschild, the John D. Rockefeller, yeah. all the usual Johnny. names. Queen Henry. Elizabeth. This yep. second. Fabian Society. So you can learn about the Fabian Society's influence here. Mm -hmm. and i'll leave the conclusion of this one for everybody to read themselves absolutely and this was just the future perfect part one yeah so <laughs> there's a little bit of reading and these these articles actually get shorter as i've gone because mm -hmm. we really establish in the future perfect the base of knowledge and then the exiliterator and the and the huxley stuff just sort of comes out of it yeah man the i i haven't dug into the huxley one yet and i I would love for you to give us a little bit of a, you know, preview again. I want to yep. read it myself, but yep. we'll take wherever you want to go next, man. So you we'll tell me how much time we got and then I'm going to make that happen for you. All right, cool. Well, in 15 minutes, we'll be at two hours and wow. I usually don't go that far. Okay. But you know what? I think this is worth it. If, if you think, do you think that we should come back for a part two? Because I yeah. would be absolutely down for that. So we yeah. don't, rush anything you know yeah, and i, I can put do. them out together yeah so that way they're kind of like boom boom and we'll just hit everybody okay. with the shock so <laughs> how about we do this how about we take the next 15 minutes go over future perfect part two and we'll leave it there and we'll okay. get into the aldous huxley and exilitera tour coming out of france and coming to california in Sounds part two whenever you yeah. want to do that okay i think that's great and we can set it up soon because i think that's a really important idea because i know that i'm going to be a lot more vocal and i'm going to be a lot more crazy when it comes to getting into the psychedelic yep. future of america and where it all went and all the nuances man watching all the heroes fall left and right so yeah <laughs> so yeah and please that's, <laughs> buddy that's where we're going and it's definitely well worth the wait and I would add just on that note right there, right back to everything we're talking about. They use the truth against us. It's not, mm -hmm. it's, you know, we're, we we always like to throw the baby out with the bathwater, no matter what the subject, because we out of fear, right? We just throw it all away. Yep. And I think uh, I've seen a lot of that when it comes to finding out some of these 60s characters were just mm -hmm. characters. Mm -hmm. You know, when you look at, uh, at um, what's his name? Uh, 
McGowan's work on uh, yep. on Laurel Canyon. It Rest all starts peace, to fall Dave apart. McGowan. And you all start you start to just think, oh, well, what about all those experiences I had on psychedelics? They can't yeah. be. I've wrestled with it for years. Like, well, it can't be all evil. So what have they done? They hijack, hijack, hijack. That's yeah. all they ever do. Yeah. And anyway, all, I digress. <laughs> well, that that game plan that you're talking about was really established through these these organizations. The, these the, liberal uh, arts organizations, the, right? Well, yeah, the inquiry and the cybernetics revolution are really that's their goal. Yeah. So, you know, Edward Bernays, we've already introduced you to as the founding father of propaganda public relations. He brings you, you know, product placement, uh, the mm -hmm. press conference and all kinds of things that we take for granted today as natural. They were actually infused into our world as part of a public relations plan. So he talks about in, in propaganda, it's like opening sentence. The conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Mm -hmm. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. We are governed. Our minds are molded. Our tastes formed. Our ideas suggested largely by men we have never heard of. Edward Bernays Propaganda, 1928. It's so uh, what do you think his tone was? What do, what do you think this man? I mean, because we all have our, our suspicions about him, of course. Yep. I'm not trying to stand in his corner by any means, but I'm again back to that idea of, you know, we're making the world a better place as delusional as we may, we may be. I mean, he's talking about other men than himself, or is he just yep. putting himself in the, you know, outside of it? Or what do you think yeah. of that? Well, this is what I established sort of in the story is that he is speaking from the third person as if he wasn't involved. But okay. you know, we can we can look at the documents and see and you're wondering about his true intentions. We can get down to that because he's been interviewed. He lived into the 90s. Yeah. And so there's some pretty incredible interviews. He 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 coins the term manufacture uh, engineering of consent where Walter Lippmann coined the manufacture of consent. And. Mm. Uh, Let's see if I can find it here. He and a man coins, like that makes a distinction on purpose. Okay. And so now we're going to get into what you're, you're asking me about cool. Edward Bernays and his intent. Okay. So he talks here in, and I've taken this from this 1991 interview where he talks about how they all coming from Paris were so impressed by the, how they were able to influence everybody through this pro propaganda program that they actually brought it home. And started okay. using it domestically. Okay. Now here's another point because Mark Crispin Miller writes the forward to the latest publication of propaganda. Now Mark Crispin Miller occupies the same seat that Edward Bernays did at New York University teaching propaganda. Edward Bernays taught the first course in propaganda. He was a professor and they did so at New York University. And today Mark Crispin Miller fills that role. Okay. So we see... In the middle there, Bernays states that he had realized that if you could use propaganda for war, you could certainly use it for peace. And ideas were weapons even more effective than bullets. That's so I've it. included some of the addresses because he he opens the first public relations uh, institution in America. And so here's some of the documents that are showing the address and, and mm -hmm. documents being going back and forth between his uncle Sigmund Freud and all kinds of other people that are involved in this, but this is the point of view that he does take. And even in 91, he even still says that 
they went there to make the world safe for democracy. <laughs> it's so, so bizarre. This is why history is so important. Yeah, absolutely, why, man. Why this particular epoch is so important because it, we've we've got the results. We can just point to them. We don't even need to argue. A lot of this reliance on the expert and this liberal push, this is what's got us here. So we can just look at the results and say, this isn't working. Yeah, we're snapping out of the, the spell. Yeah. And so Bernays and Lippmann leaving what I said, uh, colossal jackboot prints on the Western post-war psyche. And they did mm -hmm. so twice because there was two wars. And Bernays is doing it again with his, with his, uh, his seed running Netflix. Yes. Mark so, Bernays Randolph is the founder and first CEO of Netflix. Right. That's now, an important thing to know. Netflix, but you know, yep. Just go there aware of that. You certainly don't want to go watch Netflix not aware. Right, right. And it's funny, like, I don't, I mean, I go down a lot of different rabbit holes and some, but at the same time, like, all, like, it's funny to watch all the influx of, like, occult magic shows that show up on Netflix. And I'm, like, mm -hmm. thinking, my Christian friends are going to have a field day with this. <laughs> right. So... I concluded this last minute, this quote, because I found it just last second, but it really speaks to the socialist agenda that we were a part of. Uh, and a lot of this information is coming from doctoral dissertations. A lot of the uh, people in the higher echelons there are writing the exact same conspiratorial story I am, except it's done in the halls of Ivy League and they get their doctoral, they get their PhDs from writing these stories. And so I use these sources so it's not necessarily a primary one, but, you know, they are trustworthy. So right. in this quote, it says, our time, of course, believes in change. The adjective progressive is what we like. And the word new, be it the new nationalism of Roosevelt, the new freedom of Wilson, or the new socialism of the syndicalists. Now he's referring to the Fabians. Oh. Changing the world, the social republic of Alan Dolly. Now that's a Walter Lippmann uh, attributed quote that. I have not established the best thing that that would be at this point is a, is a secondary source, but mm -hmm. I included it because it's reputable. Right. Right. So here we see him talking about the social wedge between the private citizen and the vast environment in which he's entangled. Okay. The yeah. founding father. And so I also liken it back to people like Noam Chomsky ski today and jordan peterson the intellectual dark web all of these figures are really influencing uh opinion and they mm -hmm. and and so uh lipman studied under george santiana and william james at harvard and they they shape him into what they call a political philosopher okay this form of expertness and right. so walter lipman creates uh today and tomorrow it's like one of the longest syndicated columns in american journalist history and what's what I want to point out there is it's called today and tomorrow. There's no reference to yesterday. So this is a progressive thing. And and Don't so and at the time, you know, everybody would say, What well, what does Walter think? Right? This is what uh uh mothers staying at home and, and husbands going off to work, they would always rely on Walter Lippmann, and this was one of the famous uh, things that people would say back then is what would Walter think? Mm. Jesus. Okay. I so then we got, pockets. we got Freud. This is an important thing to establish before we go that Bernays is, Ed, is uh, Sigmund Freud's double nephew. 
Right. And he uses Bernays does Freudian uh, philosophies mm -hmm. and combines them with Gustav Le Bon's uh, ideas about the group mind. Okay. And so this is again, taken from, I think the same interview, this is Bernays saying this because uh, he was as a child, he was very familiar with uncle Sigmund Freud's theories and they would talk about it around the dinner table. And it says here, quote, I heard of dream interpretation. I heard about psychology as being an important force in evaluating human behavior. I heard of repression, regression, suppression, and projection, and taboos, and Oedipal complexes. So hmm. that is the murdering of your father and the raping of your mother. Right. Okay, and, and I get into that a little later, how that actually is established in the 60s counterculture, too. Hmm. Some may be already knowing where I'm going with that. <laughs> Sounds familiar. I think that... You know, this is what we wanted to establish here uh, was this inquiry. We see Russell Sage. We see the Carnegie Corporation, Rockefeller, all named in this book by Renee Worms or on foundations. This is a part of the, the, the Cox Committee. This is one of these investigations that gets sidetracked. And so Renee Worms is one of these investigators, and he's so upset when it's done. And, and I don't know the particulars, but I think Renee Worms or himself is a bachelor of arts or a master of arts and he writes the book and explains it all how it was uh railroaded and uh he states in there that they were as guilty as sin but there was nothing we could do about it because they were the, these people that were against them were a part of the same group and they they, they had infiltrated this the group of researchers and then sort of distracted them and fragmented them and and in the end nobody went to jail that's so wild, man. Yeah. And, and so it's here's so a, intentional. Yeah. And here's a page out of his book explaining the social science activities and how there's this, this is his word, interlocking relationships between all of these groups. Mm. And so we're, we get to Bateson. He's a founding member of the cybernetics. We're talking early 1942. He is one of the early invitees. He's married to Margaret Mead. They are both there. Uh, it's just a handful of people at these first meetings. And the first meeting is called uh, something about inhibition. Is it here somewhere? Um, I don't see it. It's This is important. Yeah, we'll find it. Not sure where it is. But he's named after Gregor Mendel, Gregory Bateson is, and we can get into that. Mm. Uh, so uh, Bateson, Margaret Mead, Lawrence K. Frank, they're the social science cluster. And then there's the cyberneticians that are there, but it's Bateson, Mead, they're controlling all of this. Uh, Bateson, CIA, LSD investigator, he's linked with all the 60s counterculture. Mm. What they called themselves was the Man Machine Project. Okay, this is the origins of uh, artificial intelligence, the singularity, computers, uh, the information age, transhumanism, everything goes back to this guy right here, Norbert Wiener. Okay, he's, he's working for Norbert. U.S. intelligence, uh, creating anti-aircraft missiles. Okay. <laughs> uh, 
So this is important to understand how an uh, anti-aircraft missile works. Okay. Mm -hmm. You have to predict the future of that plane. If you're going to try to shoot it down, you don't shoot at where it is at the moment. You have to sort of also take into consideration the reaction of the pilot and all of the things that happen from launch to explosion. And mm -hmm. so what they figured out was a feedback loop. And so they would constantly be giving it information. So if it was going off target, it would say to the left a little bit somehow through their communication. And, it, and they developed this technology to blow up planes to, to protect them from being bombed. Now, right. this is where the technology of cybernetics and the control of humans comes from, because just like a mouse needs to predict the future of a cat or a, a cat needs to predict the future of a mouse to catch it. This is what they're doing with humans, too. Wow. And so purpose is important because if somebody has a purpose, then they can be manipulated. If they're just sitting on the couch with no purpose, you can't do anything with those people. Wow. Okay. So Leo Wiener, he is the most remarkable boy in the world they have. He's, he makes headlines because he's like a polymath, super genius, but his dad, Leo Wiener, who happens to be a member of the inquiry okay, mm -hmm. 20 years ago has, has groomed his son. And I think, also, Leo was groomed because they are direct descendants, they claim, of Moses ben Maimon, Rambam, more commonly known as the most influential of all Torah scholars, Maimonides. Okay, now we start to see this connection, this, this rabbinical line with a lot of these people, Brandeis, Wiener, Frankfurter, they have long lines of rabbis in their families. Mm-hmm. And Norbert Wiener is the founder of cybernetics. He coins the term. He's the guy that figures out how to blow up planes. And then he establishes this feedback loop to start steering our behavior. Wow. And it's Holy called shit. the behavioral feedback loop. And so at these meetings. So is this they, like, is this like problem reaction solution? Like kind of creating our scenarios for us? So they know all the outcomes or something? Yeah. I mean, this is a term that Bernays uses is uh, the creation of circumstances. And it's really uh, just a dialectic. Right. right? But it's, it's his terminology and he's using it. So, yeah, they're just creating circumstances. Right. Okay. Jesus. And so Gregory Mendel or Gregory Bateson is named after Gregor Mendel, who's the founder of genetics. But it's, it's Gregory's dad, William, that names him that. And William Bateson was the, a fellow of the Royal Society and the first one ever to coin the term genetics. He was the founder of the Journal of Genetics in 1910 and the Genetics Society in 1919. He's the guy that really uh, popularizes Mendelian heredity. Uh, the Mendelian work was really obscured and nobody was looking at it. And then he uncovered it and made it popular. And I think that what he really is, William Bates and Gregory Bateson's father, is like what T.H. Huxley was to Darwin. He's like the okay. bulldog. He pushed uh, uh, heredity, Mendelian heredity, into the genetics uh, field that we know today. Wow. And and there, I've got all kinds of speculation that is based on faulty uh, intelligence. Mm. And, and just like the theory of evolution, I think, you know, they don't call the the... It, the uh, law of genetics it's still very much a theory mm -hmm. okay that was established through these meetings because william bateson was the president of the john innes horticultural society and this is where he coins the term this is the first time we hear it and rothschilds are there accepting lifetime achievement awards uh, and so it becomes very obvious that 
this here is the same pattern as we see in all the other patterns. Mm-hmm. You know, this is aristocracy starting to just establish things that may or may not be true. And so I think, you know, we'll just kind of quickly go through here. We're probably over time now. It's okay, man. No, no rush, no hurry. It's, but it's yeah, tough. I mean, for those listening, you should definitely go to YouTube or Odyssey or Rockfin and, and like watch this because the, you know, this will yeah. give you a big insight into the, the website too. Yeah. And so a lot of faces too. Warren. Yeah. And this is the important thing is put faces to these people. Yeah. It's important that we make these, the faces of the new world order because that's what they're doing. And, that's what and so are. I'll just sort of, close this idea here with this is that wiener establishes the behavioral feedback loop which is all about purpose and the study of our purposes Mm -hmm. warren mcculloch is the one that discovers and creates artificial neurons and he's the one that understand they discover how we think okay and so then also a part of this is claude shannon and he's the founder of the information age. And he puts this mechanical mouse in here. And so they, they, they first relate us to, uh, to, to the machine and animals through, through a digital understanding. The one commonality that they found with all of us is that we can communicate through ones and zeros. Mm-hmm. And so they start treating us the same way. And you can see with BF Skinner and all these behaviorists, how they start to identify the animal with the human. And they start to impose a lot of these things that they've studied from animals onto us. So he's the founder of the information age. Um, What happens here is he sets this little mechanical mouse out to find a piece of cheese. And in each block of this grid, the most will go in and test northeast, southwest, left, right, and front and back until he finds a way through. And then he goes to the next block and then he'll do the same until he finds his cheese. And then what Claude Shannon did was pick up the mouse, put it back at the beginning. And the mouse was able to not, no longer have to hit each side to test it. He knew the pathway and he didn't touch any walls and went right to it. This is what the billions are being spent on. Oh my God. And so he's in an environment, what they've given him is a purpose with the piece of cheese, just like we are with breads and circuses and televisions, mm-hmm. right? And, yep. and they transfer this all over to us. So I explain it here, this set of models was established based on those three elements. Okay, the logical calculus of McCullough, which is the discovery of the artificial neuron. So we, we know how information is passed now back and forth and how the brain works. And then Claude Shannon is the information pathway to go back and forth. And Wiener, Bigelow, and Rosenbluth create this behavioral feedback model that constantly gives it information to steer. So we're we're talking about cybernetics and government. This is why. Wow, man. And here's some diagrams I wanted to show because here's a human human, uh, neuron neuron with its nucleus and soma. Okay, it's yeah, called what's that word, Soma. Soma it's called Soma, and that's the drug that uh, Huxley yeah. was looking for in the book that Gordon Wass and the discoverer of magic mushrooms wrote. Right. This can't be a coincidence. No, it's not at all. Right. So, and then you look at how they've drawn it. This is out of their own literature and how it, it actually starts to look like an electrical current 
Yep. So this is Holy a shit. little disturbing. This is, this is opening up all kinds of interesting I put floodgates in my brain. <laughs> yeah. And it did to us. And it's just been the most amazing journey to find a lot of this. So again, I'm going to leave the conclusion to Absolutely. be read by the viewers because we want people to come and, and hang out at our website and start looking into this themselves. Yes, I there's it, so much to see. Yeah, I give examples of like the first ever version of what man machine was looking like, like 400 year old pictures to today. Right. What they look like, you know, the depictions of the, the singularity, what it might look like. So and, now I'm, I'm yep. curious, man, before we get, <clears throat> before we even preface the Huxley stuff, Yep. This is a total sidetrack, but it just to it's piqued my curiosity because you know so much about what was going on in America in mm. the turn of the century. I'm curious if you've done any research into like the mid to late 1800s and the idea that we've kind of stayed away from conspiracy theory here mm -hmm. is a very poignant thing because like what I'm reaching for is like this very flimsy idea of a mud flood, great reset. Have you heard these things yeah. about? Yep. And I'm curious if any of these family names or, or organizations or anything, I don't know, touch any of that at all. Yes. You know, this well, idea of orphan trains and all that, you know, there's a lot there, yeah. a lot of missing pieces though. Yeah. I can already tell because Oliver Wendell Holmes is, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr.'s father, Oliver Wendell Holmes, is there with William James, John Dewey, and Pierce, and they're called the Metaphysical Club. Uh-huh. Okay. I love and this is, your library. This is great. Yeah, and this is uh, the introduction of, of philosophy into America. So when you talk about 1880s and before that and the American Revolution, I think it all does actually go back to the Jeffersonian Hamiltonian debate. Oh, wow. I think it's because this is really, they, they, they create Mount Rushmore. And when right. you look at the names, there's a linear liberal line through Mount Rushmore. There's a reason why those four presidents are there. Right. Yeah. So and of course stolen land. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and uh, the guy that owns the house of truth Grosvenor Valentine, he that's what his job was under Taft was Indian affairs. He was taking care of he was sort of there during some of the Indian wars that were going on and stuff. And I haven't gotten into that. that yeah. Obviously, a, a interesting place to go because he's the founder of uh, of uh, industrial relations. Mm. So we start to talk about how America was put into a factory and how that actually is our servitude. And the same thing was going on in Russia at the same time. Yet we have a negative connotation of the Russian one and a sort of heartfelt one of them, the American revolution when the same thing was going on, they were using the same books. Right. Yeah. It's and all the Brandeis, same. Brandeis coins the term scientific management. Hmm. And the principles of scientific management has a giant fascist on the cover. And this is really the efficiency movement of the progressive era, making people efficient. And this is the inter the beginning of the interface with humans and machine again. Right. Yeah. They're really it steering people into yeah, man and machine. So actually, this, this here is important. I want everybody to focus on this. I took this out of the author's note from Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Okay. This is Huxley saying... 
Only a large-scale popular movement towards decentralization and self-help can arrest the present tendency towards statism. At present, there is no sign that such a movement will take place. Well, we have that today. Mm. And people ask me all the time, what are my solutions? There it is. The One of the head grand strategists gave us a way out and a direction to go. We need, well, we all know decentralization is good, but he even mentioned self-help. And this goes yeah. back to one of the first things I said in our conversation, how the well-developed individual becomes the perfect antidote to a tyrannical government. Yes. And this is really what he's talking about. We need to, uh, if, if there was any hope of us overturning this oligarchy that he presumes exists and always will exist, he says, mm was to 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 do that to, we needed to see a popular movement towards decentralization and self-help and this is really one of the things that i've been attacking on facebook and we've been really exposing some of this trying to to have people look at themselves and how they get emotionally attached to ideas because they're possessed ideologically and, and it and it forbids them from really seeing the truth and i think this is really the secret to to waking people up is just to get them to admit that we've got a problem so we don't enter in conspiracy theory at all we can right. talk about all kinds of things that really were established by these guys that are a detriment to our society and that nobody really argues with and, and we right. never really have to get into this stuff the only reason why i wanted to contribute with this is that people need to know their history well absolutely yeah and and i think it's uh it's a difficult thing to face, especially as someone like, you know, you just start to pay attention to some of these things and you start to realize things aren't as they seem. It can be extremely overwhelming. And again, we go back to to not entering into conspiracy theory because of how multiple like multiplied it becomes. Yeah. And how, you know, the the vulnerable, newly awakened mind can easily be taken in a billion different directions. Mm -hmm. And the conspiracy community, unfortunately, well-intentioned, of course, from the very beginning, has been infiltrated just like any other group at a high level, more than most of us have the ability to even like notice, you know? Yeah. And I would say, I, I, I would say that primary sources are the, the thing that's going to separate us. It actually makes our victory inevitable if we just stick with primary sources because they can't argue it. You know, Absolutely. I'm, I've, been, I've had a couple bands on Facebook, but man, I very rarely get into trouble. And now I see people just being constantly put on 30 day bands. And I want to ask, how am I getting so close to all of this and not really facing any backlash? Yeah, I feel similar. I, I don't get a lot of censorship or anything like that. And I, I don't know, it's insecure, I guess. I'm always thinking, well, I'm just not getting seen or heard enough. That's mm -hmm. why I'm not getting, uh, I'm not getting any attention. So therefore I'm not getting banned. But then again, yeah. that, that's not always the case. It's, it is interesting that we can slip through the cracks with stuff if we just stick yeah. to the facts, because if yeah. they're all put, they're putting it all out there and none of these books are burned then the information seemingly even in their minds is going to come out eventually. Yeah. yeah. At some point, it's, I don't know if they're looking forward to that. Are they hook? Do they want their great and worthy opponent? I don't know. <laughs> that quite possibly could be. And we're starting to see sort of changes in the narratives that make me think that, you know, admitting mm. that vaccines aren't necessarily safe and effective and, yeah, you know, them coming out saying that there may be some, health issues attached to taking these vaccines. It's like, 
they wouldn't be saying that if it if it wasn't meant to sort of steer in a direction so right exactly like you said it's always steering and like just like the mouse in the maze we are that yeah. i mean and yeah. all of it is is for the benefit of these groups yeah this is incredible and i'd like to end this part one with you and me sure. um with a little bit more insight into who you are and you know in relation to that last quote that huxley gave the self-help mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. decentralization and uh i've told my my wife about your farm because yeah. it's it's something in my dreams and her dreams Buddy. that we that we eventually work towards and yeah. i would just i would love it if you could tell me and my audience about your farm and what you Ooh, and your family have put together, man, because it's so humbling to know that there are people out there like you who have the same idea as me, but have organized it and put it together the right way and are really thriving with it. So yeah. please. That's a great word to use. Cause I used all the time we're <laughs> thriving. And so we, what happened was I got injured several times as a carpenter. My, I kept slipping out my back and I just could not put, uh, the tool belt on anymore. Mm -hmm. So we got to a point where I just said, I need to find something else to do. I was watching society. I wanted to, if I was going to change, I was going to do something meaningful. And so I, I was living two doors down from Curtis stone in Kelowna. And I don't know if anybody knows who that is, but he is the urban farmer. Oh, he, cool. What he did was he leased backyards because nobody was using their backyards. And so, um, he would lease several backyards and he would, he would grow his vegetables there and he would, he would offer 10% of whatever he pro, uh, profited or 10% of the food for free to, to the homeowners. And so I was actually doing this at the same time he was, and I, I was unaware of him, but he was so far ahead of me that now he doesn't even farm anymore. He actually kind of left a lot of, uh, the business in Kelowna for my wife and I, it's, and he knows, oh me we've met a couple times super serendipitously too let me tell oh, cool. you cool always the but, case with the right oh personality it's so amazing <laughs> so uh what we did was we were looking for the same thing i was going around and looking for people's backyards and we were getting some people interested and we were starting to go there and and i told my wife this and she said that i was going to be all over hell's half acre and i said you just named the farm so yes. we named it, we named it Hell's Half Acre Farms. We're uh, in the Glenmore Valley here in, in Northern Kelowna. And what we did was instead of going to do, to do all of the, the, the backyards uh, and, and this is interesting too, because if you know who um, Doug McKenty is, no, he does the shift. It's like the first podcast I was ever on. And I was just oh, on cool. there this year too, to sort of push the progressive information that we're going over. Well, I will look into him. Yeah. Yeah. He's great. I consider him a personal friend. And so he saw my stuff like you did in 2016 and said, I got to have you on my show. And so he said, here's the date, April 7th. And that happened to be the date that I said to my wife that we were going to put grow uh, peppers and tomato plants and go to a, a flea market. We were the only ones selling vegetables. Everybody else was selling their car parts and shit. And, and, <laughs> but we went there and we were hugely successful. And all I said was, we just need to put ourselves in front of people. And this is April. So we're already kind of late for establishing food and 
And so what happened was this guy, this gentleman walks in and he saw us. I had this, this pamphlet that was advertising what we do. And he said, I have a friend that's a farmer and he's just about 80 years old, him and his wife, and they want to step out of the farm and let somebody else manage it. Would you mind if I con- made contact with them and got you guys together? And I was just like, wow, what a concept. No more backyards, two and a half acres on one farm already established with a post harvest with a kiosk where we can sell our food. Oh wow! And, and, and we learned so much under these uh, farmers, Janet and Bob Tucker out there. Mm-hmm. If you ever watch this, we really appreciate everything you've done for us. Um, so this is our third year now coming up where we've managed the entire farm. He gave us a little plot in the front to keep us an eye on me at first. He didn't trust me. But within <laughs> within a month and a half, he was like, you can have the farm if you want it next year. Wow, that's awesome. And so we started with a 13-member food box, weekly food box uh, of, you know, we, we grow like 30-something different vegetables. That's We're market awesome. gardeners. Uh, and so it's just been the most amazing thing. We started with 13. It went to... 32, then 54. And now this year we, we're really pushing for a hundred member food box. Now that's just, that's a hundred families. So each family and and the people involved. So we're talking, it, it, when we reach that hundred goal, hundred member food box goal, we're going to be feeding, you know, a couple hundred people. That's odd. That's got to be hundred people, 400 people. And so our target is families. Yeah growing boys hockey players i'm looking for for <laughs> hockey play two boys in a family like it's a perfect demographic and man have we got an incredible reaction from all of these people regarding the tastes of the food because we don't use any chemicals mm-hmm. we only use uh sea kelp raw sea kelp and we also apply six essential nutrients but that's it we just put everything on water schedules because all the infrastructure is there we had no idea what we were doing i've screwed up so many times but (laughs) that's how you learn right yeah fail success is a series of failures that farm has made me into the man i am Uh, i will talk all day long about what we've done there because to me it's my greatest my wife and i's greatest achievement it's the it's the thing that i am most proud of of all the things I've done in my life the last five or six years. And so what we've now starting to do is bring in microgreens. And I have friends that we've turned on to microgreens. They've said, how do I start getting out of the sick society? I said, start growing microgreens, low, low overhead, very uh, easy. You can do it in a spare room and you can start putting away 500 bucks a week and start to establish yourself as a, as an entrepreneur. So now you're starting to, to bring freedom back to you. Right. You're not a, you're not an owner of a job just over broke. You're actually, you're creating your own freedom. So in many ways, I don't own any property, but I'm one of the most freest guys you'll ever meet. <laughs> That's awesome. Nobody even knows where I am. And you know, the whole property thing is up for grabs at this point, because yeah. while all of us are screaming homestead freedom and all that, like, they own all the land. Like if they want to put a bypass through your property, they're going to mm-hmm. do it. Like that's the problem with the whole, like, let's get out there and get away from the government. There really is no getting away right now. So like the more of us that we create out there, there's not going to be much of yeah. them left. It's just, they're just going to be all of us. You know, it yeah. sounds like we're taking over, but Hey, yeah. well, that's what fire I said. Fire. That's what I said. It'll be the most graceful, uh, <laughs> 
walking up and taking of the mic that anybody has ever seen if we do Fuck this yeah. right. Because the there won't even be, be an argument. <laughs> there will not even be an argument because if we all base ourselves in this knowledge, there they will have no other option but just to give us the mic. To fold. That's, that's, yep. that's the vision I have in my head that keeps me going. It's Aldous Huxley's look right there on the back of his book. Right. That's <laughs> the look. That's why I left <laughs> like, it oh, here. Dear. He's like, oh no, they're on to us. I put it in the right. book and I shouldn't have. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think it's a very incredible uh, quote. It's one of the yeah. things I, I direct everybody to. If they know so much about us and they offer a piece of information like that, then that's valuable. Absolutely. Absolutely, man. So we're more so, than just giving you the information. We're showing you solutions and, and, and we're not only just showing you solutions, my wife and I, and those associated with us, we're trying to, sh to prove that this is the way to go. And our farm has just been a, a great thing. And I, I would say that look forward people to us being more public with this as we go. We've been trying to keep it sort of under wraps mm. because we hadn't been really established and we didn't want to have this taken away from us because it's been so beautiful. Right. But we're about developing relationships through the food that we eat. I chose to take the two most revolutionary acts of telling the truth and growing our own food and combine it, put myself into the stadia lines of the target and say, if we're going to fight here, this is where it's going to be over far over food and farms and the truth. Fuck. Yeah, man. Well said everybody. I hope you really enjoyed this part one. Dwayne, we're going to have you back real soon. Well, awesome. the audience isn't going to know the difference. I'm going to put these out back to back. So okay. we will figure this out off, okay. off air. Yep, um, sure. This was extremely enlightening. I can't wait for people to dig in because mm -hmm. I, there's so many names and so many symbols and everything is there for the pickings yeah. to, to, to really take this for, I mean, for me, I'm taking it further back in time. Yeah. Uh, we're going to we're this is how we do it. We slowly piece this all together. And Dwayne, I really appreciate the contribution that you've made so far and that you continue to do. And th yeah, thanks again for coming on like this. Really appreciate yeah. it. Man, so, I appreciate your work too. Thank you. Appreciate it. And uh, tell my audience where they can find your work. Yeah, you can find me on Facebook, Dwayne Hayes. You can come find me. Uh, request a friendship and uh, come hang out with me on Facebook. You can find me at the history of propaganda on YouTube. And then of course at this website, bulletproofpub.com is really where we are centering all of our work. And then everything's going to sort of branch out from there. Excellent, man. All right, everybody. Well, go check out bulletproof pub, dig in and uh, stay tuned for part two. See you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Deep Share Podcast. If you want to hear more, then hit that subscribe button. Follow me on all the social places. And remember, think for yourself, but don't always believe what you think. Till next time. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, cactus carrier. Enough, I get the point. <laughs> you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. <laughs> and you will atone. What do we know? What do we know? If oh. I know what we know, then I can tell you what we know, and if someone else knows, okay? <laughs> <laughs>
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.